Good evening. This sermon tonight actually began with things that occurred 30 years ago. It was very interesting because Pastor Steve and I didn't compare what we were preaching on, but as I listened to his sermon, I realized that what I was going to say tonight would complement it. But what was going on 30 years ago was that I needed to hear the sermon that Pastor Steve preached this morning. My life, in many respects, was very different than it is today. In 1993, I was living in San Diego. I was a young lawyer who had just started a legal career for the noble purpose of making myself rich. I was relatively newly wed. I was entering my second year of marriage to my wife, Debbie. And I was relatively happy with my life. I was where I wanted to be. And I identified myself as a Christian. I had grown up going to church on a regular basis. My family was very regular in attendance. Then I didn't follow the Lord at all. I prayed a prayer at one point when I was a teenager. So I felt like I was fine with Jesus. But as a young married couple, we weren't going to church. And Debbie wanted to go to church. And I didn't want to go to church. Sundays in California, football started at church time. I didn't want to be bogged down by that. But she wanted to go, and I wanted her to be happy and appease her, so we went. And we visited a lot of churches over the course of time, and nothing was there. But in 1993, we stopped at a church that was different, very big church. And we visited a couple of times. I didn't really want to go. It was a long drive. It took an hour each way to get there. But she had heard this pastor on the radio. Her job was in sales, and she wanted to go, so we went. And in 1993, something dramatic happened. The pastor was preaching a sermon, and it wasn't the same sermon that Pastor Steve preached this morning, but it was the same message. And it was a Baptist church that did altar calls. And I remember during the time that they did every week, reflecting on what the pastor had just said, and I realized that if I was standing before Jesus, I was in trouble. I would have been one of those that would have said, Lord, Lord. And I knew in that moment he would have said to me, depart from me. But God was merciful. I didn't realize fully what I was doing at the time, but I repented and believe. And things began to change. I'll always remember those early days of being a Christian. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I'd gone to church my entire life, but all I knew were a few Bible stories. I knew nothing. Debbie was very biblically literate. I didn't have a clue what was in the Bible. But we went to a Sunday school class. It was a very big church, thousands of people, and we found a Sunday school class with other young people, and something happened in that class that was very dramatic. Not in any real sense for a lakeside attendee, but for me, it was unusual. We joined this class, and this teacher, and I don't remember his name, I don't remember the name of the class, but this teacher did something I had never experienced. He decided to teach a book, and he opened up the book, and he started in chapter 1, verse 1, and he taught all the way to the end of the book. I couldn't believe it. I didn't know what was there. It was amazing to me, and the book was transformative. It seemed like every week I was seeing something new in the Word of God that was transforming my life. No matter what it was, it seemed like I was always, well, I've got to change that. Well, I've got to stop doing that. Well, I've got to stop thinking that. 
But it wasn't a miserable burden, it was a joy. And it instilled in me a deep love for that book. In fact, I went, as I was preparing and thinking about it, I went to my shelf in my office and I still have the old Bible I used back then and I still have the notes in the Bible from those Sunday school lessons. I can't read them anymore because I can't see, but they're there. (laughs) But years after that, when I was convinced that God was calling me to be a pastor and to leave my legal career, I began to get some opportunities to teach. And as I first started teaching in a home Bible study, I went back to that same book that that man had taught in Sunday school that had had such an impact on me, and that was the first book I taught through. In fact, when I came to Lakeside and I looked it up on the website, on February 18th, 2007, in the evening service on a Sunday night, I was here as a candidate for my position, and I preached from this pulpit, and I preached from this book. In fact, when I started teaching the Faith Builder Sunday School class, when I started full-time here in July of 2007, that was the first book I went through. It was a very practical book, and I found as a young lawyer, but throughout my Christian life, even to the day, to today, that book has not stopped having an impact. I think often of many parts of the Bible, but I don't think there's a book that's had a bigger impact than the one that I'm going to teach from tonight. I think of the verses, they resonate in my mind, and I try and apply them, though I do it very imperfectly. What book is it? Despite my reputation, it's not the book of Hebrews, I assure you. (laughs) But it's right next door, it's the book of James. So as I have time for us tonight, open up, if you will, to the book of James, I'm only going to cover a little section But it's practical wisdom that I began to apply 30 years ago that I still struggle to apply today, but it speaks well to us where we are. In many respects, it fits perfectly with what Pastor Steve was teaching this morning because the focus of any study of the book of James is on a verse that Joel alluded to. It's James chapter 1, verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Everything in the book points to that. And this evening, we're going to look at just a couple of verses in this book that is so powerful. Look, if you will, to verses 19 and 20. That's where you're going to find ourselves. That's where we're going to study, and it's very simple. But it all comes back to this issue that Jesus said and that we were talking about this morning. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. James is passionate about calling every believer to live according to the commands of God. He was the half-brother of Jesus. He was writing to Jewish believers, but he was writing very practically, and I pray that it will be very practical for us tonight. The verses are simple enough, but they're challenging. They question us and they point us to the high standards that God calls us to in very foundational elements of life. And as I thought about the brief time we were going to have together, I realized these verses really, like a lot of other parts of Scripture, can be used sort of do a spiritual checkup. How are you doing with your faith? How is your spiritual health? So as we go through these verses tonight, We're going to be looking just at verses 19 to 20, and we're going to ask ourselves three questions 
three questions to evaluate our spiritual health. So follow along with me as I read first these short verses, and then we'll dive into our study. Beginning in verse 19, James says this, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Again, these are simple phrases, but they're challenging and convicting for us to apply. The first question to evaluate your spiritual health comes right out of the top. Are you a good listener? Are you a good listener? Verse 19 is where this comes from. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear. Now, there's some disagreement amongst commentators on the significance of the earlier part of the verse of this you know, my beloved brethren, but I think the clearest understanding is that this really just refers back to the truth that was taught in verse 18. In verse 18, he summarized our salvation. He says this in 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This, this is simply just a statement about how we came to faith, that God did the work through his word to bring us to faith. And I believe as James transitions into verse 19 in some very practical instruction that will continue past our verses tonight, he's just reminding them, yes, you, you are saved, you know this. He calls them beloved brethren. The things he says in this book are very hard, but he loves them. He challenges them. He points out hard truth to them, but he does it from a point of love. So he's saying, look, you came to faith. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. He's saying, you know that. I know you know that. Now these are the implications of it. You know about your salvation, beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear. He's laying out for them practical, tangible commands. And that's exactly what they are. He's going to lay out three commands. These aren't suggestions. These aren't helpful ways to live your life. He's telling them, but he's also telling us, this is what God expects. We must be quick to hear. Now, he wasn't the first person to say this. It, it's found throughout the Bible. It was found in Jewish literature. But he's reiterating the truths and making it clear this is a present duty and it's for everyone. Not just some believers. Everyone must be quick to hear. This really ties again into what Pastor Steve was talking about this morning from our text in Luke six forty seven. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. In other words, an aspect of being a believer is that we listen. Not grudgingly. We're supposed to be eager to hear and openness to hear what others are saying. Certainly in the context, it seems to imply that we should have that attitude in church. We should be quick to hear, listening and learning. Many commentators pointed out that you don't learn by talking, you learn by listening. So it's a simple enough command, but we know from our own experience, it's hard to apply. 
Pastor Steve again alluded to it this morning, but we all understand how easily distracted we are. We're listening even when we're trying to listen, and boom, our minds goes to a different place. I don't know how many times I've been listening to a sermon, and perhaps there's a mention of a place name, and I start thinking, where's that on the map? And the next thing you know, I'm looking at a map, and I've missed what's going on. But it happens everywhere. It happens in our interactions with our family. We might not listen to our spouse. We might not listen to our kids. We might not listen at work. If you're a poor listener, if you're not quick to hear, it's not okay. If that's your normal practice, it is sin and it has to stop. It's interesting because the Bible describes someone who's not listening as a fool. Proverbs 18, 13, for example, says, he who gives an answer before he hears, in other words, just quick to talk, it is folly and shame to him. So we run up against a very simple command. We must be quick to hear. We must have a desire to hear. And then we run in our fleshly perspective where quite often we just want to tell other people what we think and we'll deal with talking in a moment. And our society doesn't help us because society encourages us to tell everybody what we think, not to listen. The Bible paints a picture that we should and we must learn to hear. Years ago, there was even a movement amongst churches where pastors wouldn't preach because people didn't want that. They wanted to be able to share their thoughts. I don't doubt they did. But there's a reason why we listen because we need to learn. There's a time and a place for interaction, but there's also a time for us to be quiet and to listen to others. It's not an easy thing to do. Again, our minds race ahead. Someone's talking to us and we have the perfect comeback or we have the perfect illustration or we have the additional story. But we need to slow down and we need to realize we need to practice listening. It's a biblical imperative. And so I ask you, how are you doing? If you're not a good listener, chances are you're going to struggle with our second question as well three questions to evaluate your spiritual health one are you a good listener number two are you capable of controlling your tongue I could have just said do you know how to be quiet it's the same thing verse 19 this you know my beloved brethren but everyone must be quick to hear slow to speak quite often these things go hand in hand If you don't listen well because you have a lot to say, then you're probably not going to be slow to speak. The reason I was drawn to this book was because as I was hearing it taught, I realized one of the biggest struggles I had was that I talked too much. It happens for all of us, but since I can remember learning how to talk, I talk too much. I can remember family vacations in the station wagon. I had two older sisters. They would try and play a game with me to see how long I could not say something. (laughs) Often with enticements. 
in school, I'm sure in this therapeutic age, I would have been labeled for something because I did really good in tests, but I was in trouble all the time because I never stopped talking. And I didn't grow out of it. As I got older, I kept talking, and then I became a lawyer. Go go figure. (laughs) And then I became a pastor. Everything I do involves talking. So this isn't a minor issue to me. And I remember, and I marked it in this old Bible, when I was going through this book, I remember a proverb that I still quote from the NIV, Proverbs 10, 19, where words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. In the version I use now, Proverbs 10, 19, it says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The truth is, is if we're quick to talk, we're quick to sin. Our lives and our experience verify this. James is dealing with the nature of how we speak. His book over and over will come back to talking about this. But he understands that this is a human problem that has existed for centuries. For example, in Proverbs 17, verses 27 to 28, I already read one proverb about the tongue. Verse 27 and 28 of Proverbs 17. He who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Verse 28. Even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips he is considered prudent. But again, James understood the battle and how hard the command he was giving was going to be. Throughout his book he deals with speaking. For example, in James chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Obviously, there's just, just examples of where someone is not slow to speak, but quick to speak. James 4, 11, he says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. James 5, 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. These passages and countless passages in Proverbs and countless passages elsewhere in Scripture make it clear that how we speak matters very much to God. When he says we must be slow to speak, the idea is that we have to be careful with every word that comes out of our mouth. James knew that people who speak quickly and without sober reflection often make ill-advised remarks. It's happened to all of us. How many times have you said something and you went, oh, what was I thinking? You weren't thinking out of the overflow of the heart. The mouth speaks. As one commentator said, James is calling for restraint upon hasty and ill-considered reactions to what is heard. 
It happens a lot in churches. We can cause confusion. We can cause division. We can cause dissension. Again, the original context is likely talking about, in part, in gatherings with other believers. We've got to be quick to hear, meaning we have a teachable learning spirit, and we've got to be slow to speak, being careful not to share every thought that comes into our mind. I remember years ago, this was a different church than the one where I was saved. Debbie and I were in a small group. And it was an interesting small group because it didn't really have a leader, and they decided to go through the book of Revelation without a teacher. As you might imagine, 10 people just talking was chaos. Now, I loved the group, and there were some sweet people in the group, but it wasn't productive at all. Why? Because people were not slow to speak. For all of us, we should be careful and we should be hesitant to open our mouths and I'm as guilty as anyone, that's not the way we normally are. Particularly when it comes to the Bible, we should have a reverent awe of every time we open our mouths to say, thus saith the Lord. I think that's why James in three one says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So in every area of life, we have to exercise self-control over our hearts because it's our hearts that ultimately project out of our mouths. Now, if you struggle in this area, let me encourage you, you can change. God can change you. I talk too much now, but I talk a lot less than I did 30 years ago. But you've got to realize that if you're careless with your words, if you're hasty with your words, it's not just a character flaw, it's sin. You need to confess it to God. Perhaps repent and apologize to those who have been afflicted by this. Quite often it goes hand in hand. If you struggle because you talk too much and too quickly, it's probably because you're not spending enough time listening. Jesus, in talking about judgment, and it's unbeliever's judgment, but it's the context, makes clear that God hears everything. In Matthew 12, 36 and 37, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Here's the point, your words matter. These aren't just little things to work on. These are big things because they reflect where your heart is before the Lord. And I realized early on that even though I struggled, it was a struggle that had to be won. Proverbs 29.20 says this, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. That's been a 30-year battle as a believer because I realize if I'm hasty in my words, I'm worse than a fool. Again, I hope the application to you is clear. You have to think carefully before you open your mouth, particularly if it's in a teaching setting or in a Christian setting. You want to be careful. It doesn't mean we don't speak. It just means we speak carefully and we're slow to speak after we've been quick to hear. So think through your life. How do you speak at church or in Sunday school or in a Bible study 
or with your wife or with your kids or in the workplace. And if you see that you're not slow to speak in a biblical sense, then you need to confess it and ask God to help you change. But it's interesting because the questions are all interrelated and they build upon one another. And that brings us to our final question to evaluate our spiritual health. Are you a good listener? Are you capable of controlling your tongue? And third and finally, do you recognize the danger of anger? Do you recognize the danger of anger? Verse 19, this you know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I think we can understand this, but I want to develop it and make sure that I clarify one aspect of it. But this is something where we run up against a very angry time in history. But Peter's command is clear. As believers, we're supposed to be slow to anger. And he tells us why. And the why includes an assumption. He's talking about achieving the righteousness of God. He assumes this. He assumes that as children of God, we want to please God. This isn't talking about our salvation. We don't earn our salvation. Clearly, he's not teaching a work salvation, but he's talking about what happens after we're saved. When we become disciples, are we doers of the word? And he's assuming that we want to please God, that we want to achieve the righteousness of God. Just another way of saying that we want to live a life that God smiles upon and that he's pleased with. So assuming that all of us want to please God, he tells us that you don't get there with anger. You don't get there if you have a quick temper. A short fuse, being easily angered, and biblical Christianity are not compatible. In fact, if you live your life perpetually angry, and I'm going to make a qualification in a moment, but if you live your life perpetually angry, you really find yourself in the category of Luke 6:46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? So let's wade into this and clarify what we're talking about. But again, we live in an unusual time. Seemed like starting a couple of years ago, the entire world turned angry. Particularly in America, the anger is palpable. If you're on this side of the political aisle, you don't just disagree with the other side, you hate them. It's angry. Be honest, in election season and the outcome comes in, we get angry. We watch movies and everything else that makes us angry. We cheer on anger in movies because that goes with revenge, but that's a different sermon that we don't get to do tonight. But you just look at the world. Somebody tweets something or somebody puts out a video and the anger swarms. And the next thing you know, you're reading it about in the news and a mob, sometimes literally, sometimes online forms, and people pour out their abuse on one another. 
It's become a regular part of life, and yet the Bible never makes light of anger. In fact, the duty of Christians is to run away from anger. Colossians 3.8, we see this, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Proverbs 20, verse 3, keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Proverbs 14, 29, he who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Ecclesiastes 7, 9, do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. James is really just reiterating that very same point, but it should cause us to stop and ask ourselves, are we living differently than the world? Are we perpetually angry about everything and venting that anger everywhere? Now, here's where I want to make a brief qualification, but it's an important qualification. Not all anger is sin. Anger is a valid emotion in the face of an injustice or unrighteousness directed at others. If you're not angry when you see or read about a child being abused, something is wrong. Even Jesus had anger at the appropriate point. As one commentator wrote, anger is a natural human emotion when faced with that which is evil and injurious. But we've got to be careful because righteous anger transitions into sinful anger just like that. So these really all fit together if we're listening more carefully and not reacting and not speaking quickly. Perhaps that slows us down in our evaluation of whether something justifies our anger. Here's James' point. We must exhibit self-control over our anger. The fleshly anger that rises up when we're personally offended. When we're personally inconvenienced. When things don't go the way we want. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's where most of our anger resides we may be able to justify it by saying that we're angry for the glory of God, but we know in our hearts we're really angry because it offends us, not God. Why is this so important? Because we overlook anger on a regular basis. Anger is a part of the American fabric now. We have rights. And if we don't get our rights, then we're justified in being angry that somebody denied us our rights. And more so than I can ever remember, there's a lot of anger in churches today. Something happened in the COVID world that seemed to have flipped a switch and the world turned upside down and everybody was angry with everybody and it spilled out in churches all over America. Churches being angry against each other because they approached an issue differently. People within the churches angry because things didn't go the way they wanted it to. Anger amongst believers 
seems to be epidemic, particularly with the advent of social media where everybody can express their opinion and then everybody can tear down everybody else's opinion and it starts a cycle. What's my point of all this? If it happens in America, it just makes for an unpleasant country. If it happens in the church, it makes for sin and we're called to be different. When we allow anger to take hold and we convince other people of our anger, pretty soon people start taking sides and factions develop and that's how friendships are broken. That's how churches divide and Christ is dishonored. If you think about it, we're going to be spending eternity with our friends and fellow believers. Why would we spend our time being angry against them now? Our enemies deserve better than that. Matthew 5, 43, 44, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How much more should we care for those in the body of Christ? You really can sort through so much of this by going to Galatians chapter 5 and evaluating your life in a very simple section of Scripture. Are you living by the fruit of the Spirit or by the deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 to 20 is dealing with what James is dealing with in part. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Perpetual anger is not consistent with the Christian life. How are we supposed to be? If we're slow to anger, it's likely because we're walking by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 23, very familiar, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Uncontrolled anger isn't something to be joked about. It's something to be rooted out and confessed and turned away from. In fact, Jesus equated unrestrained anger with murder. I won't read it, but Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 22 Let me give you a loving caution. If I were to ask your spouse or your kids or your close acquaintances whether you're an angry person and they would say yes, you have work to do. You're not spiritually healthy. Verse 20 makes it clear that being angry isn't how you please God. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. If you've got unresolved anger, if you've got out of control anger, I can tell you from the word of God that you're not living a life pleasing to him. You're not being a good testimony. Are you holding on to anger? Are you justifying your anger? Don't do it. Turn away from it. Repent it. These are relatively simple verses. But after 30 years of trying, I can tell you they're hard to apply. But we must do it. Take these simple diagnostic questions to heart. If you're doing well, I say praise the Lord. Excel still more. 
But if the word of God has pricked your heart in any way, do something about it. Repent and change. The verse I began with is the verse I'll end with. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for these simple verses that have had such a profound impact on countless believers over the millennia of the church. Lord, it's very hard for us because our hearts are busy and we're not quick to hear and we're often not slow to speak and Lord, we're often quick to be angry even though you tell us that's not okay. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight and I pray for myself. Lord, help us apply these truths. Lord, we do love you and we want to obey your commandments. So I pray that you will help us accurately evaluate where we are. Lord, I pray that perhaps some would ask their closest friends and family, their spouses, how they're doing. And Lord, if people are convicted, I pray that you would give them the strength to change. Lord, perhaps for some, they realize going through these categories that They've never truly believed that they may say, Lord, Lord, but they don't do what Jesus says. I pray, if that's the case, Lord, that you would draw them to the cross. They would understand that the only hope for their sin is the death of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners. And I pray that you would help them repent and believe the gospel. Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that you would help us apply these truths to our lives. Lord, finally, we pray for Pastor Steve. We pray for his surgery this week. And we pray as a church family, we can come alongside he and Michelle and walk with them through this trial. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.